which is like basically makes me worry that the civil servants in charge of markets have absolutely no economic education whatsoever they're like free market it's got the word free in it that means yeah. nothing all, all of the freest markets are the ones in which market forces has uh, eliminated almost all of the competition and there's just like three people <laughs> giving up the profits between them right those are the best markets so yeah government is really good at being like this seems to be becoming a problem I'm sure it will disappear over time and not get steadily worse <laughs> yeah, it'll grow out we'll, we'll grow out everyone and welcome to episode 40 of Connected and Disaffected, a podcast about technology and the future of politics. I'm Raj Thomas. Joining me, I have Rowan Emsley. Hey there. And Warren Peace. Hey everyone. So to kick off this week, we have another interview with Ifeoma Azoma, who is now working on a bill to protect whistleblowers in California. Um, there is currently many restrictions on people uh, leaving who have to leave their job because of, you know, harassment, discrimination, that kind of thing, um, usually because they're placed under extremely onerous NDAs, which prevent them talking about it and can help, you know, hurt their chances of getting another job. So um, we're going to chat with Ifeoma about that in a bit more detail. Let's have you introduce yourself again. I know you've been on before, but uh, for people who didn't listen to that one, that'd be helpful. Yep. My name is Ifomo Zoma, um, and I'm the founder of a consulting firm I run called Earthseed. But before that, I was at Pinterest, Facebook, and Google um, on the tech policy teams. Okay. And we have spoken before about discrimination at, uh, that you experienced at Pinterest and the long drawn out kind of process of, of trying to get that resolved both inside and outside of Pinterest. And then we talked a little bit more generally about the prevalence of this kind of um, situation in the tech sector. And it looks like now there is actually some legislation um, coming around that might help or would have helped you uh, and maybe will help other people in the future. And I basically would just love you to tell me about that legislation. Yeah, so I've been working for a number of months um, on getting an act that was just introduced last Monday, the Silence No More Act, um, introduced in California. And what this bill would do is expand protections that came from a law that was passed in 2018. Uh, That 2018 law allowed the victims of three categories, sexual assault, sexual harassment, and sex discrimination to speak about their experiences even after signing an NDA. That was obviously very important. It came as part of Me Too. But unfortunately, what that law wasn't is intersectional because uh, it didn't cover race, didn't cover disability status, age, and the 15 other protected categories in California that fall under discrimination and harassment. So what this would do is expand it to all of the covered categories and any others that are added in the future and allow folks to be able to speak about their experience after signing an NDA, which is really important. Um, One, because people should still be compensated for any harm that they experience. And so the NDA process should not be entirely removed, but their silence shouldn't be part of what the company is buying when they're being forced out of a role that they were in after already experiencing harm. And so we're just trying to m- remove the compounded harm that comes from silencing victims. We've obviously seen 
a lot of this in the last few years. In fact, just before we came on, I was uh, reading about the what's going on with the Reply All podcast. And uh, we had, uh, you know, the Bon Appetit Test Kitchen. We had uh, your case at Pinterest. It's just like, this doesn't seem like it's going to go away. And as you say, there's actually been tons of silencing happening, you know, and still happening up until this point. So it's mind-boggling how much more there is potentially out there that we, we have no idea about. That's right. And, and it's an accountability issue. Because we can't actually address and then try to fix issues if we don't know that they exist. And what a lot of people don't understand, especially if you've never signed an NDA, particularly as part of a separation agreement, is you legally can't even tell the people you live with why you left your job. So you've now left a job, maybe one that you love, maybe one that you were incredibly public about, and all of a sudden just silence. You can say that you left and that's it. Can't say why, can't say what happened. And it's incredibly harmful to have that happen. And then just like with the Bon Appetit situation and Reply All too, in covering it, people just never know exactly. And so people who are doing harm are allowed to stay on and are never held accountable at the individual level. Uh, And then the institution isn't held accountable because no one ever knows. It's interesting that you mentioned the private actual interactions that you would have with your, you know, with your friends, with your family and whatever after you, you've been talking about your job or being, you know, a spokesperson at your job. And then all of a sudden you just can't speak about it at all is a very weird situation, very weird interpersonal situation. I mean, I immediately was thinking of there's so much we don't know, the systematic kind of the silencing and that impact, but actually that that personal interaction is incredibly strange. And it's damaging. It's damaging in a way that it's not just the job, but your whole career, because then the concern is if you're ever asked, I mean, it's not a weird question to ask someone why they left a place, but you would be concerned. Yeah, in the interview. Right. Or, yeah. <laughs> And even thought about that. Yeah, so uh, it's crazy. So just on an individual level, there's all these impacts. And then, of course, we have the, the broader silencing. And you know, a lot of these companies, they have a lot of consumers, right? And, and we often say, well, we should punish, you know, collectively, we can punish uh, these bad actors by refusing to shop at Amazon or, or whatever it is, you know, like getting people to take down the ads. You know, you've seen a bunch of these movements uh, in, in the last few years where it's like, well, we can use consumer pressure. But that, that can't happen if people don't know at any scale what is going on. So I guess you have heard from a bunch of other people who are in similar situations how this might impact them. Like, can you, can you give me some broad examples of what kind of industries are we talking about? What kind of issues are we covering with this um, NDA legislation? Yeah, it would be all 40 million people who live in California. So any sort of employment situation from being a babysitter for one person and one family to working at an Amazon, a Walmart, um, someone reached out to me and said that their partner had been working at a church something happened, they don't know, They're, they are in a ro- romantic relationship with this person, and they don't even know, because the person is so afraid to say anything because of the NDA that they signed. That is how deep this is, and how far reaching it is. It also covers housing situations. So if a landlord throws an NDA clause in a leasing agreement, and then there's a situation where you're pushed out of your lease, it has to do with discrimination or harassment, 
and harassment is a huge thing in housing situations, often people are not able to talk about that as well. So it would be huge for um, anyone from the point that it's signed forward. But I also, and I'm not a lawyer, so let me make (laughs) make that point right now. But I also think personally that going forward, if it is passed and signed into law by the governor, that it's going to be a lot harder for companies to justify spending the resources to go after people who had older NDAs if they decide to share, because the PR battle is not going to be on their side if it's already in the law. Right. Now, obviously, for people who don't live in uh, California, um, this still has far-reaching consequences because some of the biggest companies in the world are based in California. You know, uh, Silicon Valley probably foremost uh, amongst those, but also I'm thinking of Hollywood. We have a massive chunk of the entertainment industry is is based in California. You have a huge amount of food production based out of California, uh, even oil and gas production. It might seem kind of a small thing, but California is, what, the sixth largest economy in the world or something like that. So it's actually an enormous uh, impact and would go will go far, far beyond California. Are there similar sets of laws, you know, in other states and in other countries? Do you, you know, if this is a common thing, and this could be a, a blueprint for legislation elsewhere? It would definitely be a blueprint here in the United States. There are, I think, two other states maybe that have something similar that uh, allows people to uh, talk about situations they've experienced even after signing an NDA. They're not as clear as this would be. Uh, they're not as far-reaching, uh, partly because of what, how many categories California covers uh, when it comes to discrimination and harassment. And so I'm hoping that this becomes the guide for states like New York, big states like Florida and Texas. It would obviously be better to have federal legislation, but uh, with a divided Congress, I don't know how likely that is. Uh, that said, there's an, uh, there's legislation that is being considered by the Senate right now on forced arbitration that Gretchen Carlson and her organization are pushing. Mm-hmm. And that it's sort of a one-two punch because a lot of companies, especially tech companies, uh, first force you to sign as part of your employment agreement something that says you would only go through arbitration. You can't just go ahead and sue them. Uh, Arbitration is never fair for the employee, employee. And so you go straight from arbitration to then being forced into an NDA that's unfair. And so having the two together would be huge. Uh, In Europe right right now, there's a directive uh, that's being called the whistleblowers directive. That would be incredible to have at the federal level here in the United States. It's being fought by large corporations, funny enough, large American corporations in Europe (laughs) right now uh, through the adoption process. There's a lot of them in Dublin, right? Exactly. Uh, In Ireland and Germany and France, it's being met with a lot of opposition at the member state adoption level. And so we'll see where that nets, but that would actually be even better because what it, what, it, what it would allow is for folks to whistleblow about any situation, whether it has to do with discrimination or harassment or just general wrongdoing that they're seeing, whether it's a data privacy issue or misuse of consumer information, whatever it is, people would be protected in whistleblowing about it. And that's what we ultimately need. Right. And that, that goes back to probably the earliest iterations of this that people will remember listening to this. Edward Snowden, is, that's the big, the big one, and uh, Chelsea Manning, of course. 
where there's been a huge crackdown against uh, that, that kind of whistleblowing uh, well, under Obama, particularly, but in the you know in the last few years. So it, it is a hugely wide ranging issue, and it's uh, there's a lot of different people who might be impacted uh, by this kind of thing. What needs to happen uh, for this to for this to go through? What what do you what needs to go right? So it's a sort of boring technical process, along with the uh, fireworks of any opposition that will come from the business lobby. But the technical process is it'll be assigned to uh, the correct committee, which is likely the Judiciary Committee. From there, it needs to be passed out of committee, passed by the Senate, uh, since it's a Senate bill, passed by the Assembly. And then if it is passed uh, fully, then it would go to Governor Newsom's desk, and then he would have the opportunity to sign it. If he does sign it, then it would go into law January of next year. So it's a it's a year long process from now, essentially, right. to see it passed. Uh, yeah. But I'm hoping that it is. And I, I mean, I've been pretty straightforward in talking about it. That any companies who oppose something like this should go on the record about it. I absolutely believe that if your general counsel. Uh, is of the belief that people should be silenced after they've already been harmed, as if the harm isn't enough and them losing their job isn't enough, that you should say that. You should sign your name to it. The CEO should sign their name to it. And companies shouldn't hide behind organizations like the Chambers of Commerce or trade associations like the Internet Association, which I'm sure we'll see and on in Hollywood hiding behind those trade associations as well, um, because this is the sort of thing that should be fairly obvious. <laughs> it should not exist. NDA should not be a silencing tool that companies use. And so I hope that we don't face the kind of opposition that came from the business groups that opposed the 2018 bill. Um, but I'm expecting it and ready for it. Sure. I would say, you know, don't hold your breath for an easy uh, passage. You mentioned earlier, just briefly, that there are some instances where an NDA does make sense, you know, having not thought about it that much, just hearing this, I'm like, well, why do we even have NDAs? Surely they just always protect the employers. So this is like a labor issue, right? What is the argument for NDAs at all? The argument, and this is a personal one that I have, is that victims should retain the right to remain confidential, uh, particularly in cases of sexual abuse and uh, sexual assault. And so if there is a situation where that is the case, I think that um, whoever was the perpetrator of the harm should not retain the ability to share a victim's name. And that's where the protections come in an NDA. Uh, additionally, if there is financial compensation for harm that has taken place, the victim should not be forced to have that amount disclosed publicly. And so those are the two areas where I believe that there is protection for victims. The silencing and all of the other provisions that are thrown into that agreement to then twist the person's hand in order for them to receive the confidentiality or receive the compensation are what are wrong. And those parts need to be stripped out. Right. So it's all about uh, instances in which you're protecting the victim with an NDA. That makes sense to me. Uh, I was going to say, have you already seen... um attacks against this, but it doesn't sound like they've come yet. Not yet. What's funny is uh, I welcomed them um, in every one of the interviews that I've done. And so when reporters have reached out to the chambers and to different business groups, they've all uh, responded with no comment so far. So I'm sure we'll start seeing the comments when we start hearing from legislators who are pro-business and who are saying their constituents are saying X, Y, and Z. 
what I would push for then is as a constituent or as a citizen, if I provide testimony, it's with my name, companies should be doing the same. You shouldn't get to hide behind a 300 member business group. I I mean, I don't think any trade associations listen to this podcast, but for the citizens listening, uh, is there anything that can be done? Is there a petition? Is there, you know, what, what could be, how can we help? I'm working on that right now, um, along with Senator Leva's office, uh, Equal Rights Advocates, and the California Employment Lawyers Association. And we're focusing on building a coalition of organizations that support the bill first. And then once committee hearings are scheduled, we'll make sure that everyone is aware of how they can write in, especially if you live in California, um, write in to your representatives, let them know that you support the bill and hope that they support it and then follow it through the process. The legislative process, I think, is sort of opaque Mm -hmm. to most folks and maybe even entirely opaque to uh, most people, but we want to transparently guide folks through. Okay, great. Anything to add? Um, I don't think so. I mean, part of the, the focus of this conversation is, of course, the legislation. I think it's very much tied to work I'm doing uh, separate from this on supporting whistleblowers and providing resources for those who are tech workers um, and tech worker, meaning not just full-time engineers and other full-time employees, but anyone who works within the tech ecosystem uh, in order to prepare folks if they are aware of information that's in the public interest to share it safely. So thinking about their security, thinking about legal resources that are available, working with the media um, and then just sharing their stories. And so I'm happy to, um, share a presentation that I gave last week that can be downloaded and passed around. It's all open. Um, and I can send that to you. That's great. Yeah. I think there's a, it's worth, uh, like re- restating that, that the crossover between these, uh, the kind of labor issues and the broader whistleblower stuff, because obviously these huge and very powerful companies, it is in all of our interests for their wrongdoings. If there are those to be revealed. Right, they they impact virtually everybody on earth uh, with some of these companies. So anything that helps that go along, and that includes, I think, the labor side of things, is uh, is obviously welcome. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, oh, where can people uh, follow you and uh, follow along with the campaign? Uh, Twitter mostly. <laughs> so, uh, folks, uh, my DMs are open. People can reach out if they have specific questions. But I'll make sure to continue posting updates uh, from myself and from the coalition of support on Twitter. And my handle is just my name, Ifoma Ozoma. And we'll link to that in the show notes. All right. Thank you so much, Ifoma. Thank you. Yeah, so always good to hear from Ifoma. Um, long-time listeners will know uh, we did another episode with her talking about her particular experience with um, Pinterest and the kind of knock-on effects to activities against misinformation and disinformation with tech companies and, and what that means for the sector. But we wanted to kind of zoom out from, well, there's this one bill in California. Okay, that's that's obviously great for the people of California and it's a Obviously, there's a lot of people there and it's a big economy. But the reason that we wanted to talk about it is that those tech companies are enormous and they are part of all of our lives, you know, whether or not we're in California. 
they have a huge amount of impact on on everybody. And these kinds of rulings that happen in California, and they and they do actually tend to be either California or the EU that leads on this type of legislation, um, has a knock-on effect, right? And we're seeing more and more of these things all around the world. So just recently, the UK Supreme Court uh, ruled that Uber drivers were entitled workers' rights. Can hey, you believe it? Yes. Um, so this followed an employment tribunal ruling that was back in 2016 um, that also found that drivers have workers' rights. And then three <laughs> previous layers of courts up until the UK Supreme Court, because naturally Uber fought it the whole way. Um, every single step of the way, they have found Uber's arguments about their drivers being, quote, independent, self-employed partners. <laughs> no. um, yeah. Double speak there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, I, I mean, I, I half expected there to be like Rockstar or like Ninja oh, in there, yeah. you know, in real like startup <laughs> God, that stuff is so cringe. <laughs> Self-employed ninjas. Like, um, yes, uh, all layers of the UK legal system has found this argument um, unconvincing. Uh, when the Employment Tribunal first ruled on this case in 2016, it stated, quote, the notion that Uber in London is a mosaic of 30,000 small businesses linked by a common platform is, to our minds, faintly ridiculous. <laughs> um, <laughs> Understatement of the year. <laughs> our minds to Employment Tribunal. <laughs> which I, I absolutely, I just, I just love that, the shade on that ruling. Yeah. And this case is not alone. Um, it's one of about 1,000 cases currently going that are challenging this like self-employed status of gig economy workers we have the minicab firm addison lee delivery groups city sprint excel and e-courier and on and on and on you know these are these are now really common parts of our economy but these kinds of cases are becoming much more prevalent when we were first like talking about this as well it reminded me so one of the first interviews we did on this podcast actually was with a chap called Guy Standing who is very interested in kind of precarious work and advocates for a universal basic income and stuff and we talked about to him about the Taylor Review and this was god it must have been almost like four years ago we had this chat and the Taylor Review was all about kind of modern working practices and the gig economy and Guy was fairly critical of the review he basically felt that it didn't go far enough it was kind of seen as very moderate it was from a you know advisor who'd worked under Blair and that kind of thing Um, we now fast forward almost four years and that man himself Matthew Taylor has recently quit as the government's employment are and and accused it of a deafening silence on employment reform particularly since the pandemic and Brexit so you know in 2019 Boris did run uh, uh, on a platform announcing that it would be you know Britain would become the best place to work and suddenly that's all kind of disappeared over the last kind of year and a bit this kind of links back to our our chat on a a couple of episodes ago which is uh, you know about government's willingness to actually follow through on things like reviews and uh, you know its commitments if the enforcement budget is zero then not much will happen so I mean what's happened in this case and I think everyone has, has, unfortunately, it's got to the point where I think we all roll our eyes a little bit when an, when another inquest or another review is announced because, you know, all of us just want to see the ones that have already been done being implemented, I think, would sometimes be the, the first step. Um, but yeah, government hasn't progressed even those modest reforms proposed by Taylor. And that's worrying because in this current situation of economic recession and trade deals with states that have worse labour markets than us, that could be seen as kind of preparing actually for us to regress uh, and they might be more interested in bringing in legislation that takes us backwards. Um, but 
I think kind of what you're touching on here, Rowan, is that in the absence of any political progress at all on this stuff, I mean, it's been four years since that massive review. It's getting left up to workers and lawyers, I guess, to to see what can be done with existing law to try and establish kind of case precedents to kind of take, you know, they end up taking it through, what was it, four years there? Five years. Five years. So these are laws designed for a different age. And obviously going through that process is just extremely challenging and arduous in comparison and and risky. You know, it doesn't, it wouldn't necessarily result in a victory like it has here. Politicians, if they set the law, there wouldn't be this kind of whole arduous process for these, you know, these are employee individuals. These are not super well-funded or necessarily super prepared uh, people for this massive fight they take on. There is a pattern when it comes particularly to these really powerful big tech companies that it is individual so i just Mm. want to shout out you know the original uber complaint from 2016 was raised by drivers james farrar and yasin aslam they've been forced to wait five years right as we're saying uber has a lot of money they have a lot of lawyers um they're gonna fight they're gonna prevaricate they're gonna block they're gonna try and overturn any rulings against them obviously on the other side there's you know like union officials, these kinds of uh, employment tribunals, as lawyers working on the good side of the argument, but it's always, you know, it's an arms race that the individuals don't t- typically win. But the fact is, without those individuals, these are legal fights that won't be won. Like they're not, they're not coming from above. And we see this not just from the employment side of things, but also on the privacy. Right, it's Max Schrems uh, at the EU level who's who's won a lot of the privacy uh, rights that we have. Uh, gained via the you know, European Court of Justice. You see it all over the place. Basically, the government action has been very, very lacking on these big tech companies. I mean, there's a reason for this, right? Uh, and there's a reason that uh, we wanted to cover IFOMA's work here because it's super important to protect these individuals. You know, big tech companies are among the richest companies that have ever existed, you know, in all of history of the 10 most valuable companies in the world right now eight of those are tech companies five are based in the u.s and most of them in california at least they have a huge footprint in california one of the two non-tech companies is tesla which is also down the road from all of you know apple and facebook and everybody else and tesla also is you could argue is a tech company um their, most of their wealth is based in like Bitcoin asset management at the moment. So, um. <laughs> well, they're, they're doing well. I mean, it's Bitcoin, you know, Raj's hot tip for the week. Bitcoin's only going one way and that's up. That is not absolutely not financial advice. <laughs> Although they did just lose 20% of their value because of the volatility of Bitcoin. Yes. So, nice. Anyway, so, you know, there's a huge concentration of power and wealth. So if you actually want your regulation to have far-reaching consequences, those companies are a really good target. But the fact is, it's individuals who've been winning these fights. The need for individuals to intervene is, uh, as you mentioned, like these tech companies are essentially massive sort of private fiefdoms at this point and with, with a power capable of rivaling at least local governments. And, you know, one example we have of that um, is Proposition 22 in California. So this was like a ballot measure. Californians love ballot measures. Californians love, that's why they had 22 of them. And I, I can't remember if the numbers reset every year. I think they possibly do. So No, no they're just, because they, they all go through, not all of them get to the ballot. Okay, right. You have yeah. to, but when I get my, because I am a Californian registered voter, when I get my ballot, it's like 50 pages long. Because <laughs> it, it's America, you also vote for like every single 
possible official like fire chief and like weird stuff like that that you're like this shouldn't be an elected position at all Um, (laughs) someone choose whichever's smartest (laughs) the the school board and i'm like uh and so you get information on all of those people and then there's normally like 10 to 20 of these ballot propositions where it's like okay uh should we uh do a tax on tourists coming into the area should we um pass this kind of like legislation on regulating the sex work industry in california (laughs) very detailed um it's a lot uh, of direct democracy (laughs) direct democracy and and but this one was the biggest i think the biggest ever yes and it was also probably one of the least democratic (laughs) to be perfectly honest um so well the law basically specifies that employees of uber lyft doordash and instacart and that's it no one else uh, should not be classified as employees, but rather as independent contractors in much the same way that Uber tried to argue in the UK. Now, obviously, that comes with all of the, uh, you know, removal of workers' rights, sick pay, unemployment, that kind of thing, mm. benefits. Holidays. And, holidays, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. And ability to organize in a way re- sort of recognized by law, you know, form officially recognized unions and all that kind of thing. Um, and this was actually the largest corporate lobbying effort ever undertaken. Um, the the companies in question spent uh, 200 million in total on lobbying and as well as the usual um, spending on, you know, billboards, print ads, um, you know, TV ads, media, that kind of thing. They also um, just did everything that they possibly could to to get the word out um you know this included sending notifications to their drivers like bombarding them with notifications saying oh right you you know you need to support this bill you need to get the people your 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 clients to support this bill they're handing out free bottles of water with like a pitch sheet about how great the bill was um push notifications to the users of the app saying that they should vote for the proposition and uh in classic big big business fashion threatening to leave the state if they couldn't have their own way which of course is absurd like in every instance of these companies yeah, yeah, being yeah. Like, we're like, definitely gonna leave it's like they never do though do they yeah yeah there's money like, to be made yeah <laughs> it is exactly that it's like we have this exact same discussion whenever there's a pr- proposed minimum wage increase right where it's or or a high rate of tax increase you know it's like well i'll leave you know lord so-and-so is like well i'm going to have to leave britain it's like well no you're not gonna do that are you let's be honest yeah uh yeah so all of this was uh, ultimately successful and the proposition passed with nearly 60 percent of voters in favor so yeah just a, a great example of um the kind of levers that these enormous companies can pull to get their own way so transparent as well that it was uber lyft doordash and instacart it was literally written by them and referred specifically to them and them only in like <laughs> yeah. it's like it's come like, on now no- it's not just protecting our market, but it's specifically protecting us against all other competitors. That it was, could possibly it's literally come like if it. I paid my local MP like $200 million to bring a private member's bill entitled the Raj Thomas Tax Exemption Act of 20, <laughs> yeah. 2021. So ridiculous. Well, and, and it's a really good example of why um, the individuals and why, you know, why they're going after you know, the actual employees here, or sorry, independent contractors. Um, <laughs> Because let's not forget, California is the, you know, the richest state in America. It's like the sixth richest country in the world if it was by itself. It's uh, home to all these massive companies. It is also up and down the ballot dominated by Democrats. Mm. Pretty much the safest seat that there is for Democrats. So 
you know, we are talking with like uh, Diane Feinstein, who's um, one of the one of the longest serving Democrats in the Senate. She lives literally down the road from Mark Zuckerberg. Didn't lift a finger to, to fight this. The Democratic Party did nothing to fight this. Absolutely jack shit. They are the stereotype wheeled out by uh, a lot of right wing voters and Republicans as an example of either a large section of or, you know, supposedly all of the Democrat Party are just corporate stooges, basically, and in the in the pockets of, uh, you know, big tech and uh, massive business. All, all these issues that are related to the digital public sphere, it's very difficult to solve them without the platforms themselves actually doing the action. These platforms dominate the internet. They have a stranglehold across the entire ad economy, which basically powers all of the money on the internet, right? It's pretty much funneled through like four or five websites. They have almost all of the users. They have almost all of the attention. Uh, people pay for a slice of, of all of that, right? All of those users and, and all that attention. The media is reliant on it. Politicians are reliant on it for their campaigning. Um, by the way, on the media, we have a forthcoming uh, uh, interview on that about Google giving out grants to, to uh, traditional media publications around Europe to kind of, you know, make them friendlier. Uh, so you, all these traditional ways of being held to account are stymied, let's say, right? The media is not very good at holding these people to account and neither are politicians. All these misinformation tactics that we talk about all the time, they've often existed for hundreds of years, but it's like the scale and speed by having all those users in one place is the thing that's different. And you can't, Government can't just be like, hey, you need to stop that because everything moves too fast for like fines in retrospect to do anything. You need the platforms to act, right? But <laughs> but the problem is if we have no levers to make those platforms do anything, then those problems are not going to go away, right? Like you, you need them to be actively doing uh, measures to change those things. So you need to push them. And it seems like the best way of doing that may be through their employees. There's been a bunch of examples in the last few years. Uh, so Tim Bray, who's a VP at Amazon, quit over treatment of warehouse workers in 2020, which led to big protests. There's a mass walkout of Google employees, employees in 2018 over treatment of workers. And then that was followed by protests over a US defense contract that they won, that they actually then dropped. Um, Amazon workers in the EU walked out on Black Friday in 2018 over poor, poor working environment, which uh, has led to some changes. Um, we have, of course, IFOMA at Pinterest, which has led to a lot more uh, attention on, uh, you know, the smaller kind of tech giant companies. Ex-Facebook employee publicly called out Facebook for racism that made them uh, change their, like, internal policy and all this kind of stuff. You know, these reputational harms that come from employees or ex-employees calling out their bad actions tend to have more effect or more impact because it, it hurts uh, how they are perceived by the public. And the more that that perception uh, gets hurt, then the easier a target they are for governments. You know, the other people that have really been doing stuff is, is uh, first the commission, but um, increasingly national governments have been doing big fines for tech companies. But when those fines are overturned, as a, as a commission uh, fine for Apple on taxation was overturned last year, it has bad implications for those politicians. Like, it's very hard for them to recover because it looks like they've lost a big public battle. And frankly, political institutions do not have, like, a lot of credit uh, that they can fall back on. So that's really tricky. 
Plus, you know, if you only have the government attacking it, which they've been quite bad at doing, there's always a criticism from the right, right? Like you always have the pro-business, anti-government, neoliberal ghouls, right, who are still very prevalent in our public discourse, who can say, well, this is just, you're fighting against the free market. Whereas when you have workers saying, uh, you know, all of these things need to change, it's much harder to demonize that. Because um, often those workers, particularly in the, in, the, in the tech sector, are often like brilliant and highly respected in their own right. Like they're often known figures within the, you know, and have, the, have power as well and are quite hard to replace. It makes it really difficult for those tech companies to actually do something about that. Like it's a much harder fight for them to win if it's their own employees. Yeah, I mean, do we think that this is a problem of like a kind of like left versus right thing? Like obviously the left is traditionally associated with workers' rights. I think that like um, given the relatively more neoliberal turn of the, on the left, what you said about being, you know, there's criticism from the kind of pro-business side uh, on the right, but we, we don't really have a, a left who, when accused of trying to fight against the free market, will respond, hell yeah, we're trying to fight against the free market. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. I mean, I say, I say the right broadly there, not even, yeah. you know, that can include... Uh, traditionally centre-left party. Well, and then when the issue is, of course, as well, is that, especially on the international stage, well, like, its government and a number of its people are incredibly proud of how dominant and successful these big tech platforms have been. Like, it is an example of kind of, you know, a level of kind of international domination associated with almost, like, imperialism. But they've done it through business, which is seen as kind of fairer and more positive than, obviously, invading places, which they also do. Um, but uh, <laughs> that's on the side. Within America, and you've seen this often actually throughout its history with its relationships with its corporations, to an extent there is a little bit of struggle internally um, for America uh, around kind of how its corporations are handled. But on the international stage, like America absolutely falls in line behind its companies. Oh, yeah, for sure. In many ways, it won't work, for instance, with the EU on kind of regulating uh, in a kind of consistent way or, um, you know, in, a, in an equally as kind of enforceable or heavy way, I think. There's the antitrust cases going on, so there's a bit of hope that that will uh, potentially kind of lead to some changes. But um, certainly any kind of collaboration or explicit collaboration between the EU and the US and uh, major Asian economies as well on on this stuff is, is very unlikely because America basically is very happy for its, its corporations to kind of dominate uh, completely outside of its own borders. Yeah, I mean, you, they used to organise coups for like large corporations, so they have. <laughs> yeah. We have at least moved on from that. It's an important thing with these, particularly with these big tech companies. The big, one of their their big calling cards is like, oh, we're called progressive places to work. Mm. You know, startup culture, which is like infected everything. Even you know, politicians now use like startup terminology and like talk about sprints and stuff like that. Yeah, so, yeah. That like wider cultural impact is really important for them. To some extent, there's just like a, a, a full-on fight between them all for the um, you know the engineering talent and the uh, government affairs people and all that. You know, there's just like a limited pool of people that they mm. they tend to employ and they pay them huge amounts. And so when you have those employees saying, "Hey, we signed up to work for this cool company that's like changing the world," and then it turns out we're just like designing missile systems. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like border defense, uh, you know, AI technology and like, you know, facial recognition, uh, facial software. recognition software for, uh, for the child detention centers on the border. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. You know, like when, when it's all of that stuff happening, 
that is a big problem for those companies' continued like existence and growth. Right? Mm. If they can be allowed to shut up the people who realize this internally, um, that turns off that turns off that issue, right? Um, and it just means they can continue to be like, yes, we are we are very cool. Don't look at our bank balance sheet. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because um, because they they can be both as powerful as oil companies and potentially you know. Uh, very harmful probably not as harmful as oil companies i think that's a bit overblown but uh you know they can be as powerful very harmful and still be like socially acceptable yeah yeah cool (laughs) cool fun startups and i think a lot of that has to do with these kinds of laws that muzzle um Mm. employee uh, voices so when you have people from within the industry um start to tarnish that image i think that goes a really really long way um, so good for you, Ifoma Zoma, basically. <laughs> and yeah, and to listeners, sign up to your union, pay your dues, sign petitions, uh, join the marches. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's almost uh, like if only there was some way of making your employers collectively aware of your demands. Some yeah. so like <laughs> some sort of uh, confederation of employees. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> if only there was a way. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's yeah. We'll, we'll brainstorm something. I'm sure, I'm sure we can come up with all, all, all of this. Individual action is second best to like legislative change. It's as you say, it's effective and it's the most effective thing that we've had with governments refusing so far to kind of bring in legislative change. But it's also it's this kind of action that creates the the kind of critical mass that forces even you know conservative politicians here in the UK like may find themselves having to take steps in favor of workers' rights if there is enough pressure um, and enough yeah. reputational damage around it. Yeah, Absolutely. ultimately, they'll go where the wind blows, right? Mm. Politicians are, you know, they're predictable in that they are self-serving, right? <laughs> Typically. So, so you need to make that self-serving uh, instinct work for you. Yeah. Um, and this is how this is how that works. Um, yeah, and, you know, hopefully we see more things like this, more, um, you know, court cases are great, uh obviously but um actual worker organizing and worker power is is much better and then um wider legislation is ultimately what's going to do this um going to do us uh, much better good you know? <laughs> uh, but but the, annoyingly that's kind of the last step you know that's not they're not going to lead right no. so we need to support all of these people who are making big game absolutely I think that's a good place to end it there. Yeah, thanks again to our guest, Foma Azoma. We'll post links to um, her work and uh, that kind of stuff in the show description. Um, but that's it for this week. So uh, thanks everyone for listening. If you like if you like the show, you can support us on Patreon. We are patreon.com slash connected and disaffected. We recently uploaded a, uh, a bonus interview on there, a longer cut of one of our interviews. So there is a longer version of the interview that we did with Adrienne Buller last week um, on from Commonwealth on the subject of environmental capitalism. So yeah, support us on there or subscribe to us on SoundCloud if you want to keep on top of our new releases. So until next week, uh, bye-bye. Cheers, everyone. Thanks, bye. Cheers.